Luke 1 in just a minute, but I want to start in Genesis 1. Seems like an odd way to get to the New Testament in Luke 1, but let me read you the opening verses of the Bible. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. These are pretty well-known words to most of us, but beyond the words, if you can get the image in your mind of what that looked like at some level anyway, that will be helpful as we go into Luke 1. So you've got this initial creation, and there's this darkness, and over it the Spirit of God is hovering somewhat hen-like, hovering over this dark area, and then God says... Uh, let there be light, introduces light into the darkness after there's this hovering, overshadowing presence of God there. With that as a backdrop and keeping that image, whatever that looks like in your own mind, uh, let me refer to the New Testament and the way the New Testament opens in each of the Gospels. You know, if you go to the book of Matthew, it starts with, this is the genealogy of Jesus. So Matthew jumps right in. Of course, the Gospels are always about the stories of Jesus, but... Matthew gets us right in. He's going to tell us about Jesus and His lineage and who He is and what to expect from that. Uh, If you look at John's Gospel, literarily it starts with language that mirrors Genesis 1.1. So the early readers at least of John's Gospel, as soon as they heard those words in the beginning, just like Genesis 1.1, their minds, the images they're seeing are going back to Genesis 1 also. And they know John is tying Jesus, the word he's talking about there, with the Creator God, Yahweh, I am that I am in Genesis 1. And then John tells us later, not only is Jesus God and the Creator of Genesis 1, but He is also in Himself the light of the world. So this very intentional uh, use from John of Genesis 1 language. If you look at Mark, Mark jumps right in with John the Baptist and he introduces John so John can introduce us to Jesus. And if you get to Luke, where we're going to plant this morning, Luke 1 If you were here a month and change ago, you know the introduction to Luke, Luke's writing for the benefit of Theophilus. Theophilus has heard the details of the the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and Luke says, I'm verifying that account for you. I've taken into account eyewitness accounts. I've researched this thoroughly, and so I'm verifying the things you've already heard about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, after Luke, introduces his book and he introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth who are going to end up having John the Baptist when he begins to introduce us specifically to the person of Jesus he does so with language and imagery that's reminiscent of Genesis 1 these first three verses and we're in a narrative again this morning and we're going to be a little bit all over the place so bear with me be patient keep your thinking hats on eyes open ears open all that good good stuff. But uh, I'll be a little bit rambling this morning because I want to bring in a number of different passages that speak to some of the imagery that Luke is using because I think God's very intentional about this and He doesn't just give us the narrative in Luke 1, but the imagery in this narrative ties to a bunch of other scenes in the Scriptures. And because God does that, we know with great intentionality He's not only recorded His Word, it's interwoven very tightly, but He's also showing us that from the very beginning, from before the foundations of the world, 
God was always planning to sum Himself up, His glory in His Son. And so He gives us all these types, these shadows, these illusions, these hints in the Old Testament about Jesus in His incarnation, in His crucifixion, and in His resurrection. And so one of the things we want to make sure we're doing when we're going through the Scripture is we're not just seeing the text somehow isolated and by itself alone, but we're seeing the ways in which God has knit that into the bigger picture because that gives us a huge level of confidence both in Jesus and what God's done in Christ, but also in His Word. You know, we take the Bible seriously here, but the more you're in it, the more confidence you have in it. And one of the ways God elevates our confidence in His Word is we see how fully and tightly knit these images, these themes are. So, in Luke 1, we're, we're going to see this. The Creator of the universe is going to take up His abode in the darkness of Mary's womb when the Holy Spirit hovers over her, overshadows her, the power of the Most High overshadows her to bring the light of the world through her and into this world. That's Luke's imagery in Luke 1, as you'll see here in just a minute. So we want to remember, we'll touch on this near the end, uh, the incarnation is a singular miracle in the history of the universe. And by incarnation, we are saying God takes on our humanity. God incarnates Himself. God enfleshes Himself in our humanity. If this isn't true, if the incarnation isn't true, you and I have no hope whatsoever in the world. If what Luke says here in Luke 1 isn't true, isn't the way things really are, you and I have no hope for redemption, salvation. We have no one, nothing, to pin our hopes on for the future. So this is important stuff. The incarnation, no less then the crucifixion, no less than the resurrection, is part of God's eternal plan. We need to take as seriously as God did the things He records here through Luke this morning. So, um, like the other narrative sections we've already taken in Luke, as I said, we'll ramble a little bit. And you know when we pick up here in verse 26, we'll be in Luke 1, 26 through, I believe it's 38, um, the angel Gabriel has already come to old Zechariah there in the temple when he went into the holy place to offer the incense there. And God spoke to him there and said, you and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a child. You're to name him John. And uh, Zechariah went home unable to speak. We're picking up here at verse 26. So in the sixth month, this is six months from the time of, of uh, Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Um, the term virgin there is the Greek Parthenon, and Luke doesn't specifically draw our attention to this, but Matthew does. In Matthew 1, 22 and 23, he brings up Isaiah 14. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that same Greek term for virgin Parthenon is used there in Isaiah. So Matthew lets us know this is what God was talking about in Isaiah 7.14, the, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, uh, when He said, The virgin, the Parthenon, will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. God is with us. So in Jesus coming into the world, the text we're looking at this morning, Matthew refers to that and says, This is Isaiah 7.14. This is God coming into our midst, God joining us. 
Also, just FYI, Mary was a very common name uh, for the Jews. If you read this in the New Testament Greek, it's Mariam, Mariam. If you read this in the Hebrew, it's Miriam, just you know, different languages. A, a name gets changed a little bit, and that's true here too. But Mary, a very common name in Judaism. So angel, the term angel means messenger, and Gabriel looks a little bit like uh, almost an errand boy here, sent from the throne room of God to Zechariah, six months later sent by God again now to Nazareth. So at verse 28, Gabriel came to her, to Mary and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. By the way, put yourself in her shoes for just a minute. If you were in your laundry room at home by yourself and you're humming a tune in your head or you're looking at the laundry and separating the hot water from the cold water things, you're all by yourself and you look up and there's a strange man in front of you. Would you be a little shocked, a little frightened? We talked about this with Zechariah in the holy place. You know, yeah, you'd be startled. You know, not only that, but for Mary in that day and that time, uh, there wouldn't have been a strange man in your house if there was a young lady present. Virginity was guarded desperately by this culture. This would not have happened to anyone, much less a male figure. Now, I'm saying a male figure... I'm assuming there's no halo and there's no wings, okay? I don't know what he looked like, but he's got a male name. We don't know a lot about angels regarding some of this, but he's got a male name, so it would be a male figure, I assume, that she looks up and suddenly sees, and she would be frightened. Now, I assume his appearance is a little different. She knows this isn't just any man, just like Zechariah did in the temple as well. And he says, a favored one, uh, don't be afraid. Uh, Gabriel informs her that God is with her and she has found favor with God. You have found favor with God. Uh, One of the texts I'd like to bring in this morning just talking about God's intentionality here is Genesis 6-8. You have found favor with God. Hopefully that rings a bell for you or language close to that. You have found grace with God. Has anyone else in your memory in the Old Testament found grace with God? So I'm thinking back to Genesis 6 and Noah. So think of this again for a second. In Genesis 6, 8, when God says, I'm sorry I've made man, the earth is fully corrupt and I'm going to wipe out all humanity. I'm going to cleanse the earth and I'm going to start over. The text says Noah found grace. And in the Greek Old Testament, the, the wording is the same. The word is the same. Noah found charis in the eyes of the Lord, just as Mary is said to here. And if you think about the story of Noah... God is going to wipe out in judgment all of humanity except whoever is in the ark Noah builds. And so think of this for just a moment. And we've talked about this, by the way. We did a series a couple of years ago out of Luke 24 in which we went back through Genesis and picked out all these vignettes that were pictures or types of Christ. And this was one of them. So imagine Noah's ark on the water all the life that's going to exist on the cleansed new earth comes out of that ark. Noah is connected to God preserving life for the new earth, just as Jesus will be the one who from himself is the second Adam, is the genesis of all life that will go into the new heavens and the new earth. 
And as the ark sits on the waters of God's judgment, within that ark is all the life that's going to come out. And you've got very similar imagery here. And the phrase, Mary found grace in God's eyes, takes us back to Noah and reminds us this language is similar and so is this theme of salvation and deliverance through a specific person that found grace in God's eyes. Think of the dark interior of Noah's ark. You know, there were only clear story windows at the top, so it would have been dark and it would have been warm. Sounds fairly womb-like to me. And out of it will be delivered all the life that comes onto the cleansed earth. So, this goes back to what I said earlier. When we're reading the Bible, a group of us are finishing a Bible survey through the last year, and it is just fascinating if you bring a little intentionality, especially through the Old Testament, and just say, how often do I see Christ in these texts? God's intentional that He is summing up all of His works in Christ. And you'll see that. And you'll see the way He weaves that together in the Old Testament text especially. Then it's fulfilled in the New. So Gabriel addresses her. She's shocked. He says, don't be afraid. You found grace in God's eyes. Verse 31, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So Mary, you're going to consume, uh, conceive in your womb. You'll have a son. You'll t- you're to call his name Jesus. You remember, this is the same thing in Zechariah's case. God said through the angel to Zechariah, you're going to have a son, and you're to call his name John. Now we said there, when a person names, they're the one in authority. So though God gives this baby John to Zechariah and Elizabeth, God says uniquely, this child is mine. I'm naming him. He belongs to me. He's for my special purposes. Well, that same thing happens here. So Gabriel says, you're going to have a son, but you're not choosing his name. God the Father has already chosen his name. God the Father says, uniquely, this one is mine for my purposes. And I've given him the name. And the name, of course, Jesus, sort of an anglicized uh, transliteration of the Greek. So in the Greek, it'd be something more like Yesu. And so that means Yahweh, or God saves, or God is salvation. And that comes from the Hebrew Yehoshua, which means God saves. When we say uh, God here, uh, God's proper name, uh, Yahweh, uh, what we say Yahweh, but it means I am that I am, the eternally existent one. So God says through Gabriel, you're to name this child the eternally existent one saves. So in Jesus, whether you're thinking of Isaiah 7, God is now with us, that was true. And Yahweh is here to save us in the Son that Mary will have. Very important the name. By the way, too, Isaiah 7, you're to call His name Emmanuel, but you called His name Jesus. Is that a problem? Could Jesus have more than one name? In Isaiah, is Jesus called by more than one name? He sure is, so that's not a problem. Now, verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And His kingdom, there will be no end. Now, if you've got your Bible, if you want to for a minute, you can flip back to Genesis 14. I just want to follow up on this term, the Most High. The Most High used over 50 times in the Old Testament as a name for God, the Most High. This child, Mary, that you have is going to be the Son of the Most High God. And if you go back to Genesis 14, it's the first use of this name for God. 
And the person making this first use is Melchizedek. Now, just as the phrase in Luke reminds us of Noah, the phrase most high puts us back in mind of Melchizedek. And just as Noah and the ark prefigure Christ, so does Melchizedek. And again, from that series we went through earlier out of Luke 24, we talked on Melchizedek as well. But Melchizedek's name means the king of righteousness. So the king of righteousness is the ruler of the city of peace, Jerusalem, Salem, or Salem, or Shalom of peace. So in Melchizedek, we had a picture of a priest king who would rule in Jerusalem. And this is picked up in Psalm 110. It's picked up again in Hebrews 7. In Hebrews 7, it tells us that Jesus is the new high priest. And his priesthood goes back to a priesthood akin to Melchizedek's. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from Judah. So Hebrews tells us if there's a new priesthood, there must be a new covenant. Our group just happened to look at this last week in our Bible survey class. So he, he is the son of the Most High God. His name and this title goes back to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is another picture, another foreshadowing of what God would eventually do in God the Son, in the Incarnation, who would ultimately become the priest and king, and also, not in this text, but would also be the prophet that would fulfill all other priests, all other kings, all other prophets. God, again, is summing up all things in His Son. Gabriel says, um, Give to Him the throne of His father, David. I'll just touch on this this morning. We've already talked about this when we went ahead and we looked at, you remember that uh, prophetic praise called the Benedictus that Zechariah spouts when he's filled with the Spirit when John is being circumcised. He said that God was bringing a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. And we talked about the fact that God gave David and David's household a covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And God said to David through the prophet Nathan, you want to build me a house, that's okay, don't worry about it. You're not going to build my house. And the language in that covenant spoke, no doubt, about Solomon in the short term, but also spoke of a descendant from David's body who would rule over an eternal kingdom. And Solomon did not do that. Solomon was a picture, like Melchizedek, like Noah, like the ark, of the one, of God the Son, who would eventually come in our humanity and would save us. And let me mention this too. Uh, the covenant God made to David in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7 says, and depending on your translation, the language will vary a little bit, but it says, from your bowels, this one will come. From your loins, from your body. This one is going to be a physical descendant of you, David. Uh, if you read some commentaries today related to the genealogy in Luke, some will say, this isn't Mary's genealogy. It's actually a second genealogy of Joseph. And this isn't as clear as any of us would like it to be, but this is the thing for me. We know we have Joseph's genealogy in Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew's Gospel shows Jesus has right to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, through his father's line. And he's adopted by Joseph, so he has the full rights of heir and sonship through Joseph, and therefore the claim to the Messianic title and throne. But God promised David that the Messiah would come, 2 Samuel 7, 
from his own body, and Joseph cannot contribute anything to the promise that Messiah comes from his body. Joseph is not the parent. He's not the father. So the promise to David that the Messiah would come from his own body has to be through Mary. And that's another reason why I think the genealogy in Luke 3 is Mary's. It's not a secondary genealogy of Joseph's. Uh, last, Daniel 7, uh, 13 and 14. Again, we talked about this. I just want to refresh your memory, or if you weren't here before. But God said, He, he talked about the four primary kingdoms of the world. He showed Daniel these intense, uh, crazy images of beasts and monsters, and they represented the world empires that would come one after the other. But the fifth empire that would come up would be instituted because it said one like a son of man would go up to the ancient of days. One would go up to this, this throne of fire from which a river of fire was coming forth, this place of intense judgment as it were, but there would be one who was called the son of man who would be able to approach that throne and from the ancient of days he would be given rule over a kingdom that would never end. And we're seeing that promise referenced here as well that we have to have a king adequate to take up to go to that fiery throne and accept this eternal kingdom which will never end so this is going to be mary's son the son that gabriel's talking about is this promised king verse 34 mary said to the angel how shall this be or how will this be since i am a virgin have you guys ever wondered why gabriel hammers zechariah and doesn't marry. Do you remember? Uh, Zechariah's language is almost identical to Mary's, right? When Gabriel says to Zechariah, you and Elizabeth will have a son. He says, how will I know this thing's going to happen? He's inferring, I'm old, she's old. This, we've been there, we've tried this, and it's not happened. And Gabriel reproves him. And he says, Zechariah, you were actually asking for an attesting miracle that my words would, would be true, but I've come from the throne room of God. I am one who stands in God's presence. I can't lie. I couldn't lie if I wanted to. This thing will happen, and the sign you've, you've wanted isn't going to be one you'd like because the sign is going to be you won't be able to talk until the promise is fulfilled and John is delivered. Now, Mary's language is very similar, but goes to a different issue. Mary clearly believes the promise she doesn't, believe his, she doesn't disbelieve His Word. She simply knows biology and she's saying, how will this occur? Her statement here reflects, I'm a virgin and what you're saying can't happen through the normal channels. She's already betrothed to Joseph. In Jewish culture at the time, betrothal was as legally binding as a marriage, but the marriage was not yet consummated. So if you think of all the miracle babies before, even think of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the miracle was that God gave conception to a couple that otherwise could not bear. But Mary's saying, never had sex. It seems you're inferring a child with a person who's never had sex, biologically impossible. So how will it occur? Not if it will occur, but how will this thing be? Now I'm so glad she asked that question, aren't you? Because that elicits verse 35. How will this thing be? And this is where Luke gets into this language very reminiscent of Genesis 1 and some other texts as you'll see here in just a second. So Gabriel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So again, just in your mind's eyes, what, what does this image look like? So here's Mary. The Holy Spirit will come over you. And the shadow of the Most High, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's Genesis 1 language. And that's how this conception is going to occur. He'll be holy. He's called the Son of God. Hovering, overshadowing presence of God introduces the light of the world into the darkness of Mary's womb, as it were. Gabriel says there's no natural paternity. There's no human father. Mary is bearing Yahweh's Son. So this imagery, it's rich, and we're going to look at a couple of examples here. Um, we could say for a time, couldn't we? For a time period, Mary becomes like the Ark of the Covenant, doesn't she? God inhabits her. She carries God within her. Or Mary becomes like the tabernacle in the Old Testament, or like the temple in Jesus' own day. Because God resides in the person of Jesus from the point of conception to the point of delivery. Mary is the house of God. She is the dwelling place of God. So you've got this imagery of the hovering, overshadowing presence of God taking up residence in a temporary house. So keep that in mind while we look at Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. This is the very end of the account of Exodus. And Moses has done everything God told him to do to, to build these articles, these golden articles, to put the tent together, the tabernacle, the walls that would go around it, the altar. All this stuff is done. And when it's done, verse 34, the cloud, and the cloud here is the presence of God, the glorious presence of God. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here's this imagery. The cloud of God's presence is overshadowing the tabernacle, the tent Moses just put up, and then enters that tent and takes up his abode there. And that was his presence through the wilderness wandering and then into the... Davidic period and up to the New Testament or up to the tavern, uh, excuse me, the temple under Solomon. In fact, if you look at Solomon's dedication of the temple, the language is again very similar that the glory of God is over the new temple and then comes and inhabits the temple. It's the same imagery. God overshadowing and then filling. Uh, taking that same thought, this overshadowing presence of God, David Lyle Jeffrey says... Thus the divine presence in the Holy of Holies, which Zacharias did not himself encounter. Zacharias was in the temple of God, but he wasn't in the Holy of Holies. He didn't see the cloud of God's glory in the temple. Uh, did not himself encounter is here made to overshadow and inhabit as tabernacle the person and womb of the virgin. We'll talk a little bit about Mary's status uh, near the end. But for a time, it's not inaccurate to say Mary is a kind of ark, a kind of temple, because she houses within her body, as it were, God Himself in the person of the Son. 
Now, lest we give Mary too much credit, let me ask you this now. Who is the ark of God today? Or who is the temple of God today? We are. The church is the temple of God. That's, what, that's Paul's language. So for a time, Mary is the house, if you will, that God takes up His abode. But guys, does this not raise the level of our faith for you? If you say, here's Mary, this unique role in redemption, absolutely, in which the incarnation occurs through her body. But then we say today, based on the authority of the Scripture, that we, that you and I and all believers in Jesus, filled with His Spirit, are the temple of God today. Does that not raise the stakes for how we live and how we think and how we think of each other? It should. So unique privilege for Mary on one hand, but as members of the body of Christ today, you and I are called to this same imagery for ourselves. We are part of the temple of God. We comprise the temple of God that God by His Spirit dwells in today. Last along this line, I'll just mention Luke 9, 34 and 35. Uh, this is the transfiguration. And Jesus is up there with Peter... Is it James and John or Andrew? I forget now. But they're, they're taken because Jesus is transformed in this glorious appearance and Moses and Elijah show up. And Peter's nervous and he's not sure what to make of it all. And he says to the Lord, would you like us to make three tabernacles? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now Peter's confused and that's okay. But when he asks that question, it's as if Jesus is on par with Moses and Elijah. And it's at this point that the text says, a cloud overshadows the mountain. And a voice speaks from the cloud, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. And when their eyes are opened, it says all they see is Jesus. The cloud overshadows and the only element left that's of any note or importance is the person of Jesus. Moses and Elijah were always meant, the periods, the epics they represent, or the scripture that they wrote, were always meant to point to Christ. That's the thing. We're always meant to see Jesus out of the Old Testament. You see the Trinity here, right, in this verse? The Spirit is going to be over you. The power of the Most High, the Father, will overshadow you. And the Son will be conceived in you. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then when Jesus gets baptized later in Luke 3, you see the Father speaking from heaven, this is my Son. You see the Spirit descending as a dove on the Son. So the imagery is really rich. God wants us to fix this in our mind. By the way, you know one of the things you can do when you read your Bible, if you don't see it in your mind, it may be dull. If you can imagine, use your imagination, I don't mean this in a, a negative sense, if you can make it your own, it's vivid and it's alive. And you see things that you don't see otherwise. If you just read a dead text, if you just read commands, you'll miss so much of what God wants for us. He wants to engage all of us as we take in His Word. And as Mark said earlier, it's not just so we can be fascinated, which, if you like literature, the Bible's as good as it gets. It gets no better. The intentionality and the way everything is woven. It's the best literature in the world, right? 
But if that's all it is, we're missing out. We're supposed to respond to God in obedience as well. Uh, just mention, we do not know when this moment of conception occurred, which is fine. If I don't know when your child is conceived, I'm good with that. And we don't know when Jesus was conceived because the language is future tense when Gabriel speaks. But mere verses later when Mary goes down to her relative Elizabeth, the conception has occurred because Elizabeth says, you're the mother of the Lord. So I don't know when in that time period, short order, maybe days or a week or not very long, somewhere in there the conception occurs. Future tense when Gabriel speaks, past tense when she sees Elizabeth. Let me just hang to for verse, on thir verse 35 for just a minute. Uh, on this verse, uh, uniquely so, a little different, uh, maybe we could say that, than many other passages of the Scripture, on the integrity, the veracity, the truthfulness of this verse rests your hope and mine for salvation, for a future, for a hope, for eternity. Whatever hope Christians have, it rests on verse 35 here in Luke. If what Gabriel says is true, we have someone who really can save us from our sin. If what he says is true. If Mary's son is without a human father, if the Most High is Jesus' Father, we have someone who can save us from our sin. If this is true, we have the promise of the sun rising on a new day, ushering in an eternal period of righteousness. Do you remember Malachi 4 was referenced earlier when we looked at John? We have that hope that the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. We've got that hope if what Gabriel says to Mary is true. We have the possibility of participation in an eternal kingdom as co-rulers with the head of a new race of humanity if what is said here is true. If you think too, one more reference. You remember uh, Adam in the creation account is laid down on the ground in this deep sleep. His side is wounded. A rib is removed from his own side, from his wounded side, from the rib. Eve is formed. And Eve becomes Adam's co-ruler of this lush garden world God has put them in. And Jesus, if this is true, if the incarnation is true, in His death is laid down in the sleep of death. His sight is wounded by the soldier's spear. And out of that wounded sight, out of that atoning sacrifice, Jesus' bride, the new Eve for the new Adam, is brought forth to co-rule with Him His eternal kingdom. You've got the same thing echoed again. Foreshadowed in Genesis 3, uh, 1, 2, and 3 and fulfilled in Jesus if what Luke says here is true. If Gabriel's words are true, we have a sacrifice adequate to take away sins. We have the Son of Man who can stand before the fiery throne and withstand the absolute perfect judgment of God and receive that eternal kingdom. Now, if Gabriel's words are not true, if this is not the virgin birth, and you know, depending on who you read or who you listen to today, Jesus is many things to many people. And to many people, Jesus is not God the Son. There is no incarnation. Jesus was another man. He was another prophet. He had a human father. If if what Gabriel says to Mary is not true, you and I have no hope of salvation. There's no hope for an atoning sacrifice. There's no hope of an eternal future in God's presence. Because this is the thing. 
For you and I to have a Savior for substitutionary atonement, for someone to take my place and yours to cover our sins, two things need to occur. One, that person would have to come from our own number. To be our representative, he would need to be one of us. That, If Gabriel's words are true, that's good because he comes through Mary, he's one of us. But the other side of that is, he has to come from us, but he cannot share our sin. If he's from us, but he shares our sin, then when he dies, he dies. He dies for his own sin. This verse 35 in Luke 1, if it's not true, you and I have absolutely no hope. No different than Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. If the resurrection hasn't occurred, Paul says of all men we are most to be pitied because we're believing a lie. We're basing our lives and the foundation of our lives on a lie. But that's true of the incarnation as well. I knew a guy years ago, decades ago, who, who was intrigued by the Scriptures, who sort of wanted to investigate the claims of the Gospel, Jesus, and the place he wanted to hang his hat was on the incarnation. Because he got it. He said, if there really has been a human born on the earth that has no human father, I think the rest of it is true. And I don't know if he ever came to grips with that or not. But he understood. That is what hangs. That's what is at peril here. If what Gabriel says is not true, you and I have no hope whatsoever. If Jesus isn't the Son of the Most High, we've got no hope. But he is, by the way. We're saying if propositionally. But he is. Okay. Uh, Mary doesn't ask for a sign, but Zechariah gives her something to give additional confidence in his word. Because he tells her, verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So no one else, Mary doesn't know this. She lives up in the north. Elizabeth's down in the south. She doesn't know this. So Gabriel says, hey, your old relative Elizabeth who never could have kids, well, she's pregnant. And it's God's doing, because with God nothing is impossible. Uh, let me mention in the births of John and Jesus, both of these are human impossibilities because Elizabeth was barren, couldn't have kids, and now is past the age of having children. And yet God gives the birth of John supernaturally. God empowers, if you will, normal conception through a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. But it couldn't have happened without God's intervention. And in Jesus' birth, you've got a biological impossibility. You don't have a human father. You can't have birth. You can't have conception. But Gabriel says, for nothing is impossible with God. I always have more to say than I have time. So, uh, but I'll mention uh, Genesis 18. If you remember in Genesis 18, Yahweh, Yahweh visits Abram and Sarah. Yahweh with two angels. Maybe Gabriel's one of them. Could be. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But two angels and God himself walk up to Abram and Sarah's tent. And while they're there, and the text is very clear that it's Yahweh, that it's the eternally existent I am God. And you know, we call these theophanies. That means God shows up in a temporary visage or a temporary form. He looked like a man. But Abram knows this is more than a man. And the angels are the ones who go to Sodom and Gomorrah. But Yahweh says to Abram, with Sarah listening in the tent, 
within the next calendar year, Sarah will give birth to a son. Now this is, G this is God the Son speaking to Abram, saying, Sarah, who can't have children, like Elizabeth, is too old to have children, is going to have a son within the next year anyway. So this is Jesus telling Sarah and Abram about an impossible birth. These same words will be true of Jesus' birth eons later. When Sarah laughs because she doesn't believe. Yahweh, God the Son says, is anything impossible, is anything too difficult for the Lord. It's the same language. It's referencing the same person, the same kind of thing. Genesis 18. Later in Luke's Gospel, point out this too. You know, sometimes, Steve, we were talking in uh, Sunday school class about miracles, and do you believe miracles are possible? I don't know if I've ever seen a physical miracle. You know, God overruling the laws of nature to do something particular in, within my sight or hearing. I don't know that I've ever seen that. But think of this for a minute. When Jesus is talking, this is out of Luke uh, 18. When Jesus is talking there to his disciples, he says something that sort of breaks their mold for who they understand was most likely to be saved and have favor with God. And they thought it would be the rich. And Jesus says it's hard for the rich to be saved. And so they're not sure what that means and what to make of that. And, and in response, Jesus says what's impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible with man is possible with God. You know, the incarnation was a biological impossibility, but it happened anyway because God's not restrained by our abilities. But you know, he was talking about salvation. Every person in here is a miracle, would you not say? If you've believed in Christ and you've experienced spiritual rebirth, that's, an, that's a human impossibility. You can't get there in your power and mind. Spiritual rebirth, we can't do it. We can produce children. We do it well in this church. I'm glad for that. But spiritual rebirth, it does not occur by the will of man. It's what God does. Every person here who's trusted Christ is a spiritual miracle. And Jesus said in that context, what's impossible for man is not impossible with God. Don't underestimate the miracle status, not just of the incarnation, but of the rebirth that hopefully you've experienced. And if you haven't, rebirth is as easy as entrusting yourself into this incarnated God's care. Uh, let me wind down. Uh, I can't remember what I've got on your study sheet. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Uh, verse 38 to close out. Uh, Mary, to all this, uh, listen to her response. Uh, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now think about this for just a second. You've probably had an experience in your life where like 10 thoughts go through your mind in a second. You know, images and repercussions of what just happened or what I did or what's going to happen to me. And, and I suspect when Gabriel is saying these things to her, this is a young woman engaged to be married. She's going to have to tell her intended that she's pregnant. Can you imagine in her mind this? Virginity highly protected. By the way, adultery, and this would have been considered adultery if she had had sex with another man, even though their marriage hadn't been consummated, it would have been adultery. Adultery was a capital crime under the Mosaic Code. 
They weren't carrying it out in these days. But could you see the thoughts running through her head right away? What's Joseph going to think? Will he believe this? Is he going to reject me? What will my parents think? The wedding is so far off. If this conception occurs at any time soon, people count months from the point of marriages until births. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? Who's going to believe me? But when she speaks, none of that comes up. All she says is, be it done to me according to the Lord. I am, in fact, she says, I am God's bondservant is doula, it's slave. It gets translated different ways because of different contexts. She just says, I am God's slave. And whatever he wants, I'll do. I love this. Whatever God wants, I'll do. I would love to have that attitude for myself more often. I would love for us as the church, the body of Christ, to have that attitude more often. You know, we were talking here this morning. The tech team was frazzled this morning. Things weren't going our way. And some of the musicians were frazzled. I got here and realized I'd left my manuscript at home. I've done that before. You know, and there's this temptation. Uh, things are out of control. What's going on? I've got to worry. I've got to fret. Things aren't going the way I want. How do we respond when that happens? Think of how much peace we just say if we just say, Lord, what do you want here? How can I please you? What do you want from me, your servant? And for us, frankly, it's not just servant. This is a great attitude. It says sons and daughters of the living God. Do we say, Father, what do you want? How can I please you? How can I be a part of what you're doing? Even if all that means is I'm accepting a little inconvenience. That'd be a good thing. Or kids, if you still live under your parents' roof, how about what do you, what's your attitude towards God's Word when you realize God's Word says, children, obey your parents? Do I say, Lord, I'm your slave. I'll obey my parents with a smile on my face. Yes. Or how about if I'm married and God's Word says to me, love and respect my spouse, whether I think they deserve it or not. How am I doing on that one? Lord, I'm your slave. I'm your servant. Whatever you want, I'm here. How about our attitude at work? Doing all things heartily for the Lord. Are we bringing our best to bear on the things we're doing? Do we bring Christ's name into what we're doing? That's God's command. Do we have Mary's kind of attitude towards God's commands for us today? Something else I'll close with. Um, the stories between uh, the announcement of John John's birth and uh, Jesus' birth are, are profoundly different. When Gabriel goes to Zechariah, it's a public figure in a public place. And there's all this talk because he's, he comes out and he can't talk. He can't speak. And so all these people are wondering, what is going on? Public person, public place. What is going on? But when Jesus' birth is announced, there's no one around. It's to a little young lady apparently by herself, in a nondescript backwater, backwoods portion of the nation of Israel in a corner of the Roman Empire. And check this out. When this occurs, no one in the world knows that Mary bears the Son of God. Nobody knows but her. She's the only one. Until she gets down to Elizabeth, no one else on earth knows that God incarnate is occurring through her. No one knows but it's already occurred when she gets to Elizabeth and the world is unaware. And you know, oftentimes, 
we are tempted to despair and to some sense of discouragement because we look around and based on what we can see or hear or put our finger on, we're not sure God's doing much. And maybe we've prayed and we've asked God to do things, could be a number of things, and we see nothing going on. And friends, that has absolutely nothing to do necessarily with what God's up to. God, the Son, is on the planet and no one knows but one little girl up in the north in Galilee. But it's already happened. He's here. And God is often at work in your life and mine and in the lives of others around us that we're praying for and have godly hopes for family and friends. And we're simply not aware of it yet. That's okay. At the end of the day, we want to say with Mary, Lord, I'm here for you. What do you want? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your word is true and that you have fashioned your word so intricately, so finely, that wherever we turn, if we have eyes to see, we see your son Jesus. And just as the disciples, Lord, on that Mount of Transfiguration, opened their eyes, they didn't see Moses, they didn't see Elijah, they saw your son Jesus. Lord, would you help us to see him more fully? And Lord, would you inculcate in each one of us more of Mary's demeanor and attitude of we are your bondservant. Lord, thanks that we don't need to worship a human being for the ways you choose to use them. Lord, thanks that your church today, the body of Christ, is the temple of God on the earth and that you inhabit us today. Lord, would you inhabit our praises now and help us to give you with overflowing hearts the praise due your name. Amen.